Chapter Twenty Three of the Giant's Robe by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three. Piano Practice. Caffin was conscious of a certain excitement that Sunday evening as he waited for Mark Ashburn's arrival. He felt that he might be standing on the threshold of a chamber containing the secret of the other's life, the key of which that very evening might deliver into his hands. He was too cautious to jump at hasty conclusions. He wished, before deciding upon any plan of action, to be practically certain of his facts. A little skilful manipulation, however, would most probably settle the question one way or the other, and if the result verified his suspicions, he thought he would know how to make use of his advantage. There is a passage in the autocrat of the breakfast-table where the author in talking of the key to the side-door by which every person's feelings may be entered goes on to say if nature or accident has put one of these keys into the hands of a person who has the torturing instinct i can only solemnly pronounce the words that justice utters over its doomed victims the lord have mercy on your soul there it is true the key in question unlocks the delicate instrument of the nervous system and not necessarily a bluebeard's chamber of guilt but where the latter is also the case to some extent the remark by no means loses in significance and if any man had the torturing instinct to perfection caffin might be said to be that individual there was nothing he would enjoy more than practising upon a human piano and putting it hopelessly out of tune but pleasant as this was he felt he might have to exercise some self-denial here at all events for the present lest his instrument should become restive and escape before he had quite made up his mind what air he could best play on it in the meantime mark was preparing to keep the appointment in the pleasantest and most unsuspecting frame of mind after answering caffin's note he had met the langtons as they came out of church and returned with them to lunch dolly was herself again now her haunting fears forgotten with the happy ease of childhood and mabel had made mark feel something of the gratitude she felt to him for his share in bringing this about he had gone on to one or two other houses and had been kindly received everywhere and now he was looking forward to a quiet little dinner with the full expectation of a worthy finish to a pleasant day even when he mounted the stairs of the house which had been once familiar to him and stood in Holroyd's old rooms, he was scarcely affected by any unpleasant associations. For one thing, he was beginning to have his conscience tolerably well in hand. For another, the interior of the rooms was completely transformed since he had seen them last. Then they were simply the furnished apartments of a man who cared but little for his personal well-being. Now, when he passed round the handsome Japanese screen by the door, he saw an interior marked by a studied elegance and luxury. The common lodging-house fireplace was concealed by an elaborate oak overmantel, with brass plaits and blue china. The walls were covered with a delicate blue-green paper, and hung with expensive etchings and autotype drawings of an aesthetically erotic character. Small tables and deep, luxurious chairs were scattered about and near the screen stood a piano and a low stand with peacock's feathers arranged in a pale blue crackle jar in spite of the pipes and riding-whips on the racks 
the place was more like a woman's boudoir than a man's room and there were traces in its arrangements of an eye to effect which gave it the air of a well-staged scene in a modern comedy it looked very attractive softly lit as it was by shaded candles in sconces and a porcelain lamp with a crimson shade which was placed on the small oval table near the fern-filled fireplace and as mark placed himself in a low steamer chair and waited for his host to make his appearance he felt as if he was going to enjoy himself i shall have my rooms done up something in this way he thought when my book comes out the blinds were half drawn and the windows opened wide to the sultry air and while he waited he could hear the bells from neighbouring steeples calling in every tone from harsh command to persuasive invitation to the evening services presently caffyn lounged in through the hangings which protected his bedroom door sorry you found me unready he said i got in late from the club somehow but they'll bring us up some dinner presently looking at that thing eh he asked as he saw mark's eye rest on a small high-heeled satin slipper in a glass case which stood on a bracket near him that was kitty bessborough's once you remember kitty bessborough of course she gave it to me just before she went out on that american tour and got killed in some big railway smash somewhere poor little woman i'll tell you some day how she came to make me a present of it here's binney with the soup now mrs binney sent up a perfect dinner at which her husband assisted in a swallow-tailed coat and white tie a concession he would not have made for every lodger and caffyn played the host to perfection though with every course he asked himself inwardly shall i open fire on him yet and still he delayed at last he judged that his time had come binney had brought up coffee and left them alone you sit down there and make yourself at home said caffyn genially thrusting mark down into a big saddle-bag armchair where i can see your confounded face he added inwardly try one of these cigars they're not bad and now we can talk comfortably i'll tell you what i want to talk to you about he said presently and a queer smile flitted across his face i want to talk to you about that book of yours oh i know you want to fight shy of it but i don't care it isn't often i have a celebrated author to dine with me and if you didn't wish to hear it talked about you shouldn't have written it you know i want you to tell me a few facts i can retail to people on the best authority don't you know so you must just make up your mind to conquer that modesty of yours for once old fellow and gratify my impertinent curiosity mark was feeling so much at ease with himself and caffyn that even this proposition was not very terrible to him just then all right he said lazily what do you want to know first that's right well first i must tell you i've read the book i'd like to say how much i was struck by it if i might i'm very glad you liked it said mark like it echoed caffyn my dear fellow i haven't been so moved by anything for years the thought you've crammed into that book the learning the passion and feeling of the thing i envy you for being able to feel you have produced it all that ought to fetch him he thought oh as for that said mark with a shrug and left his remark unfinished but without as the other noticed betraying any particular discomposure do you remember now pursued caffyn how the central idea first occurred to you but here again he drew a blank 
for mark had long ago found it expedient to concoct a circumstantial account of how and when the central idea had first occurred to him well i'll tell you he said it shows how oddly these things are brought about i was walking down palace gardens one afternoon and he told the history of the conception of illusion in his best manner until Caffin raged internally you brazen humbug he thought to sit there and tell that string of lies to me when it was finished he remarked well that's very interesting and i have your permission to tell that again eh certainly my dear fellow said mark with a wave of his hand his cigar was a really excellent one and he thought he would try another presently we must try him again thought caffyn he's deeper than i gave him credit for being i'll tell you an odd criticism i heard the other day i was talking to little mrs bismuth you know mrs bismuth by name some fellow has just taken the charivari for her well she goes in for letters a little as well as the drama reads no end of light literature since she gave up tights for drawing-room comedy and she would have it that she seemed to recognize two distinct styles in the book as if two pens had been at work on it now i may find out if that really was the case after all he was thinking i thought you'd be amused with that he added after a pause mark really did seem amused he laughed a little mrs bismuth is a charming actress he said but she'd better read either a little more or a little less light literature before she goes in for tracing differences in style you can tell her with my compliments that a good many pens were at work on it but only one brain where is it your matches live i can't draw him thought caffyn what an actor the fellow is and yet if it was all above board he wouldn't have said that and i've got holroyd's handwriting which is pretty strong evidence against him but i want more and i'll have it he strolled up to the mantelpiece to light a cigarette for which purpose he removed the shade from one of the candles throwing a stronger light on his friend's face and then pausing with the cigarette still unlighted between his fingers he asked suddenly by the way flagate said some other fellow wrote the book for you the other day that shot at least told every vestige of colour left mark's face he half rose from his chair and then sat down again as he retorted sharply flagate said that what the devil are you talking about what fellow why you were there when he said it some amanuensis you gave the manuscript to the colour came back in rather an increased quantity to mark's cheeks what a nervous fool he was oh ah uh, that fellow he said i remember now yes i was absurdly anxious to remain unknown you see in those days and and i rather wanted to put something in the way of a poor fellow who got his living by copying manuscripts and so you see i see said caffyn what was his name his name repeated mark who had not expected this and had no name ready for such immediate use let me see i almost forget it began with a b i know brown brune something like that i really don't recollect just now but the fact is he added with a desperate recourse to detail the first time i saw the beggar he looked so hard up dressed in buckram thought caffyn but he said nothing in rags you know that i felt it would be quite a charity to employ him 
so it is agreed caffyn did he write a good hand i might be able to give him some work myself in copying out parts oh he'd be useless for that put in mark with some alarm he wrote a wretched hand well but in the cause of charity you know rejoined caffyn with inward delight hang it ashburn why shouldn't i do an unselfish thing as well as you what's the fellow's address he he's emigrated said mark you'll find it rather difficult to come across him now should i caffyn returned well i dare say i should and mark rose and went to one of the windows for some air he remained there for a short time looking idly down the darkening street a chapel opposite was just discharging its congregation and he found entertainment in watching the long-lighted ground-glass windows as a string of grotesque silhouettes filed slowly across them like a shadow pantomime turned serious when he was tired of that and turned away from the blue-gray dusk the luxurious comfort of the room struck him afresh you've made yourself uncommonly comfortable here he said appreciatively as he settled down again in his velvet pile chair well i flatter myself i've improved the look of the place since you saw it last poor holroyd you see never cared to go in for this kind of thing queer reserved fellow wasn't he very said mark and then with the perverse impulse which drives us to test dangerous ice he said didn't you say though the other evening that he had no secrets from you trying to pump me are you thought the other but you don't did i he answered sometimes i fancy now and then that i knew less of him than i thought i did for instance he was very busy for a long time before he left england over something or other but he never told me what it was i used to catch him writing notes and making extracts and so on you were a great friend of his ashburn weren't you do you happen to know whether he was engaged on some work which would account for that now did he ever mention to you that he was writing a book for instance never said mark did he did he hint that to you never got a word out of him but i dare say you who knew him best will laugh when i tell you this i always had my suspicions that he was writing a novel a novel echoed mark holroyd excuse me my dear fellow i really can't help laughing it does seem such a comic idea and he laughed boisterously overcome by the humour of the notion until caffyn said well i didn't know him as well as you did i suppose but i shouldn't have thought it was so devilish funny as all that for caffyn was a little irritated that the other should believe him to be duped by all this and that he could not venture as yet to undeceive him it made him viciously inclined to jerk the string harder yet and watch mark's contortions he wasn't that sort of man said mark when he had had his laugh out poor dear fellow he'd have been as amused at the idea as i am but this success of yours would have pleased him wouldn't it said caffyn for a moment mark was cut as deeply by this as the speaker intended he could give no other answer than a sigh which was perfectly genuine caffyn affected to take this as an expression of incredulity surely you don't doubt that he said why holroyd would have been as glad as if he had written the book himself if he could come back to us again you would see that i am right what a meeting it would be if one could only bring it about 
"'It's no use talking like that,' said Mark, rather sharply. "'Holroyd's dead, poor fellow, at the bottom of the Indian Ocean somewhere. "'We shall never meet again.' "'But,' said Caffyn, with his eyes greedily watching Mark's face, "'even these things happen sometimes. "'He may come back to congratulate you still.' "'How do you mean? He's drowned, I tell you. The dead never come back.' "'The dead don't,' returned Caffyn significantly. "'Do you? You don't mean to tell me he's alive?' "'If I were to say yes,' said Caffyn, "'I wonder how you would take it.' If he had any doubts still remaining, the manner in which Mark received these words removed them. He fell back in his seat with a gasp and turned a ghastly lead colour. Then, with an evident effort, he leaned forward again, clutching the arms of the chair, and his voice was hoarse and choked when he was able to make use of it. "'You have heard something,' he said. "'What is it? Why can't you tell it? Out with it, man! For God's sake, don't! Don't play with me like this!' Caffin felt a wild exultation he had the greatest difficulty in repressing. He could not resist enjoying Mark's evident agony a little longer. "'Don't excite yourself, my dear fellow,' he said calmly. "'I oughtn't to have said anything about it.' "'I'm not excited,' said Mark. "'See, I'm quite cool. Tell me all you know. He—he's alive, then? You have heard from him? I, I can't bear it.' "'No, no,' said Caffin. "'You're deceiving yourself. You mustn't let yourself hope, Ashburn. I have never heard from him from that day to this. You know yourself that he was not in any of the boats. There's no real chance of his having survived. For it was not his policy to alarm Mark too far, and least of all to show his hand so early. His experiment had been successful. He now knew all he wanted, and was satisfied with that. Mark's face relaxed into an expression of supreme relief. Then it became suspicious again as he asked, almost in a whisper, "'I thought that. But then, why did you say all that about the dead, about coming back?' "'You mustn't be angry if I tell you. I didn't know you cared so much about him, or I wouldn't have done it. You know what some literary fellow—is it Tennyson?—says somewhere about our showing a precious cold shoulder to the dead if they were injudicious enough to turn up again. Those aren't the exact words, but that's the idea.' Well, I was thinking whether, if a poor fellow like poor Holroyd were to come back now, he'd find anyone to care a pin about him. And as you were his closest friend, I thought I'd try how you took it. It was thoughtless, I know. I never dreamed it would affect you in this way. You're as white as chalk still. It's quite knocked you over. I'm really very sorry. It was not a friendly thing to do, said Mark, recovering himself. It was not kind. "'when one has known a man so long and believed him dead, "'and then to be made to believe that he is still alive, it... it... "'You can't wonder if I look rather shaken.' "'I don't,' said Caffin. "'I quite understand. "'He has not quite forgotten after all, then. "'He still has a faithful friend in you to remember him, "'and he's been dead six months. "'How many of us can hope for that? "'You must have been very fond of him.' "'Very.' with a sad self-loathing as he spoke the lie. "'I shall never see anyone like him. Never.' "'How well he does it, after all,' thought Caffin. "'I shall have plenty of sport with him.' "'Would it give you any comfort to talk about him now and then?' he suggested, "'with one who knew him, too, 
though not as well, perhaps, as you did. Thanks, said Mark. I think it would some day, but not yet. I don't feel quite up to it at present. Well, said the other, with a wholly private grin, I won't distress you by talking of him till you introduce the subject. And you quite forgive me for saying what I did, don't you? Quite, said Mark. And now I think I'll say good night. The horror of those few moments in which he had seen detection staring him in the face still clung to him as he walked back to his lodgings. He cursed his folly in ever having exposed himself to such tremendous risks, until he remembered that, after all, his situation remained the same. He had merely been frightened with false fire. If he had not been very sure that the dead would never rise to denounce him, he would not have done what he had done. How could Vincent Holroyd have escaped? Still, it was an ugly thought, and it followed him to his pillow that night and gave him fearful dreams. He was in a large gathering, and Mabel was there too. He could see her at the other end of an immense hall, and through the crowd Holroyd was slowly, steadily making his way to her side, and Mark knew his object. It was to denounce him. If he could only reach him first, he felt that somehow he could prevent him from gaining his end, and he made frantic efforts to do so, but always the crowd hedged him in and blocked his way with stupid impassibility, and he struggled madly, but all in vain. Holroyd drew nearer and nearer Mabel, with that stern, set purpose in his face, while Mark himself was powerless to move or speak and so the dream dragged itself on all through the night. He had some thoughts on waking of setting his fears to rest forever by making some further inquiries, but when he read once more the various accounts he had preserved of the shipwreck, he convinced himself willingly enough that nothing of the kind was necessary. He could dismiss the matter from his mind once for all, and by breakfast time he was himself again. Caffin, now that his wildest hopes of revenge were realised, and he saw himself in a position to make terrible reprisals for the injury Mark Ashburn had done him, revelled in a delicious sense of power, the only drawback to his complete enjoyment of the situation being his uncertainty as to the precise way of turning his knowledge to the best account. Should he turn upon Mark suddenly with the intimation that he had found him out, without mentioning as yet that Holroyd was in the land of the living? There would be exquisite pleasure in that, and what a field for the utmost ingenuity of malice in constant reminders of the hold he possessed, in veiled threats and vague mocking promises of secrecy. Could any enemy desire a more poignant retribution? He longed to do all this, and no one could have done it better, but he was habitually inclined to mistrust his first impulses and he feared lest his victim might grow weary of writhing. He might be driven to despair, to premature confession, flight, suicide, perhaps. He was just the man to die by his own hand and leave a letter cursing him as his torturer, to be read at the inquest and get into all the papers. No, he would not go too far. For the present he decided to leave Mark in happy ignorance of the ruin tottering above him. He would wait until he was even more prosperous, more celebrated, before taking any decisive steps. There was little fear that he would see his revenge some day, and meanwhile he must be content with such satisfaction as he could enjoy in secret. I must put up with the fellow a little longer, he thought, 
we will go on mourning our dear lost friend together until i can arrange a meeting somehow a telegram or letter to the ceylon plantation will fetch him at any time and i don't care about doing my charming mabel such a good turn as bringing him back to her just yet i wonder how my worthy plagiarist is feeling after last night i think i will go round and have a look at him End of chapter 23